to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is to realize that we exist as on the circumference of a circle and God is at the middle. And there's no point from which you can move closer toward God without moving closer to your neighbor. Much of spiritual formation and growing in life with God ask us to be willing to listen. We lean in to the reality that the Spirit is ever at work, drawing us closer to the heart of God, showing us how to live well in our families, neighborhoods, work and church, and of course, society at large. And sometimes the movement of the Spirit invites us to openly listen to the stories of other image bearers and to honestly take a look at the cultural soup we've spent our lives swimming in. It is in this spirit that I'm pleased to offer you a conversation I had with Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove about his new book titled Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. My name is Nathan Foster, and welcome to the Renovare Podcast. Jonathan, it's good to see you. Good to be with you. There's something that caught my attention about your book right off the bat, and that's the subtitle, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. And I found myself, as I read that, a kind of visceral reaction of, one, what is slaveholder religion? And I don't want that, right? Mm. What does that mean? And and how do we move away from that? Could you share with us a little what you mean when you say slaveholder religion? Yeah. Well, um, I should say that I'm borrowing the name for something that I've been trying to uh, understand really my whole life long. Um, So maybe the first thing to say about slaveholder religion is that um, most of us who have inherited it or any of its trappings um, are are completely oblivious to it. So, So that's a good place to start, that it's a kind of, it's a kind of invisible influence that um, I think has shaped uh, much of American Christianity and by virtue of um, the influence that uh, this culture and um, nation has had on the world has really shaped the world over the last century. Uh, but, but Frederick Douglass said, Frederick Douglass, who was enslaved by people who called themselves Christian, and um, he said, I prayed for my freedom for 20 years, but God never heard my prayers until I prayed with my feet. <laughs> he, he ran away. Um, and when he got away, he became, he became a great leader of the abolitionist movement in the 19th century. And in that role, he wrote his story for the first time. And at the end of telling his story of his own journey toward freedom, he adds an appendix at the end where he says it has occurred to him that some who read his critique of the hypocrisy of uh, Christians, uh, slaveholding Christians, might think that he's anti-Christian. And he says, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, He said, but he he wishes to make a distinction, he says, between the Christianity of the slaveholder and the Christianity of Christ. Mm. So here's this deep understanding from someone who had experienced the way uh, people had used Christianity to justify owning other human beings. Um, He he understands that there's a whole theology, a whole reason of scripture, a whole uh, uh, understanding of who God is that is tied up with that. 
and that it is antithetical to the Jesus who he knows for himself, uh, the Jesus who he worshipped in the AME church uh, as a member of his whole life. So um, I have found that description <clears throat> very helpful as one who inherited the legacy of slaveholder religion. And uh, this book is really about trying to name the ways that tradition uh, influenced American Christianity and influences many of the patterns and practices of of our lives that we think are normal. And that um, I, I grew up just uh, assuming uh, until uh, I began to run into contradictions and uh, to realize that there was uh, more going on here than I could see. A few years back, I had this realization that historically all these ideology and practices of oppressing people were always kind of bathed in religion and that there are, you know, people who would perpetuate uh, harm and evil and destruction of others um, and would use religion as a justification of sorts. One of the things that occurred to me is that, the and whether that's right, slavery or civil rights or women's, you know, right to vote, it's all in there, that when slavery, for example, was abolished, these churches still existed and continued to exist and yeah. they didn't, you know, naturally or just, you know, automatically change in that way. So, in essence, what you're saying is there's pieces that carried on that kind of baked themselves into the uh, religion that affect us today? That's right. And uh, I guess it's important to say that this is not a new challenge to uh, religious practice. This is something that Jesus addresses in the first century, right? You have heard it said, but I say to you, um, some of Jesus' strongest uh, condemnations are really directed at the religious teachers who he understands to be some, good to be with you, point of, uh, of God's revelation to people, right? You brood of vipers, Jesus says, to, um, you know, not to uh, uh, regular old folks on the street, but to religious teachers who, who he knew were using religion to mislead people. And I think, um, I, I think that is a pattern that is a, there are temptations that are peculiar to religious people. <laughs> and I think those of us who are religious should pay attention to those. And, um, and certainly in the context of the American story, uh, the story of the just the, the religious justification of the enslavement of human beings, I think has, uh, a long-lasting impact on Christian faith and practice. So what I've tried to do is to go back and look at um, how this developed, uh, because I think there's there's a lot of just um, misunderstanding, uh, even for what, what racism means. Um, for example, one, one thing that we, I mean, we talk a lot about racism and public life in America these days. And, you know, one of the instincts I hear among Christians is that is the notion that, you know, if we could, if we could only get people to overcome their kind of, you know, racial assumptions about people, then we could, we could work to fix the problems, you know, that exist with inequalities and, you know, systemic issues. But I think that's a, that's a kind of basic misunderstanding of how uh, racism came to be, right? Because um, we, we so often think that there was some basic problem in people's hearts, and that led to a bad system. Uh, when, as a matter of fact, uh, I think the work of uh, Ibram Kendi, uh, who wrote 
the book stand at the beginning is very important just in terms of addressing this sort of basic historical point that that racism didn't come from some sort of internal uh, uh, bias that people had that then sort of worked itself out. It really developed the other way around. It was created to uh, make a system work. And the system was specifically the plantation economy. It was um, a way of using stolen labor uh, to work stolen land in order to uh, create wealth. And um, that system turned out to be extremely profitable. Um, I happen to live in the place where that system was born, eastern North Carolina, eastern Virginia, uh, northern South Carolina. This is where the plantation economy was born in the 18th century. And in in, in the midst of that, if you go back and look at the discussions that people had, um, there, there was all sorts of recognition that there was a basic moral contradiction at the heart of this, right? That, that, that claiming to own other people is just a basically outrageous idea, especially for people who read the Bible. Uh, In the early 1700s, the Baptists get together and vote that no Christian could faithfully uh, uh, follow Jesus and own another human being. But then those preachers who gathered for that Baptist assembly, this is during the colonial era before, before Virginia was a state, they go home. And of course, the most prominent members of their congregations are plantation owners. And they informed them that, um, that, as a matter of fact, they are good Christians and that they need to go back to their next meeting and find a way to explain that, right? These are the people who paid the bills. And so there were folks who began to pay preachers and seminary professors to explain why uh, it was perfectly Christian, <laughs> perfectly normal uh, to, to have this system. And the Baptists changed their vote eventually. You know, all, all of the uh, mainstream denominations get on board. And in the course of doing so, develop a way of reading the Bible that essentially um, reinforces the hardness of heart that was necessary to conduct that kind of inhumanity to other people. Um, That's the basic twisting of the scriptures that I think we have to understand if we're going to get to uh, any of the ways it's echoed down to us through the centuries. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really helpful. The, the system was set in place and then kind of working back from that of how do we kind of justify yeah. the way we're... Yeah, the, 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 the assumptions we have about people were developed in order to prop up the system. Um, and you can see it, for example, Example: When you look at the way legal codes were rewritten in order to uh, prop up the system, so for example, uh, in Virginia, in this you know colony that was trying to um, uh, exist with a plantation economy as its basis, um, there is an effort in the Virginia Assembly, a successful effort to change inheritance law, because it was uh, understood by all of these white property-owning men, and property included people, uh, that it was a a perfectly normal practice for them and their colleagues to rape the women whom they claimed to own. And this meant that they had children by their wives, and they had children by the people they enslaved, which screwed up inheritance law, because inheritance law was patrilineal in British common law. And that meant that, uh, that, that these children of the enslaved women were the rightful heirs of these men. So they changed the law. In the Virginia colony, you get matrilineal descent, 
because uh, because they wanted to prop up the system. So they 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 they, they developed uh, ways of uh, making even the most corrupt and crass uh, realities of this system normal in order to uh, uh, prop up the system. And then there's all sorts of you know, uh, uh, ideas that develop about, you know, the, the uh, over-sexualization of, you know, uh, African-Americans and these things that grow out of that kind of, you know, these are the kind of racist assumptions that grow out of the basic reality that people are writing into the law and making normal. So I, I think it's really important to see how the racism, what we usually call racism, the kind of uh, internal biases and prejudices that people have, uh, were really developed to make a group of people subservient to the owning class. A couple things are clear to me in the book. One is that this is uh, you've you've done your homework, right? You've, you're, in terms of history and such, but it's also a book that is kind of taken a lifetime to write. There's a lot of uh, your mm-hmm. story wrapped up in it. Uh, what were some of the um, pieces that you began to discover that were uh, coming from a slaveholder religion that you had just uh, assumptions that you'd accepted? Yeah, I think one of the early realizations for me was as a teenager. I remember watching television in the late 1990s and hearing um, an interview with a professor who was talking about Southern Baptists. It was the first time I had ever had the sense that like people talked about us outside of us. <laughs> and what, what he was talking about was a decision that had been made by the Southern Baptist Convention uh, to, to compel uh, uh, missionaries um, to sign a statement, uh, which is kind of ironic because the one thing we talk about as Baptists is, you know, how we have no creed. But anyway, they, they were using this statement called the Baptist Faith and Message to, uh, to, to, to try to sort of get people in line with um, uh, a kind of, uh, they called it a conservative resurgence within the movement. And the thing they focused on was um, uh, women submitting to their husbands. And of course, they quoted Ephesians along that line. But the, um, this, this was kind of a controversy at the time. And the scholar who was being interviewed noted that uh, while they might not be aware of it, the Southern Baptist uh, who had turned you know, to the latter half of Ephesians had turned to the very same passage that their predecessors had turned to 150 years before when they separated from American Baptists over the issue of whether missionaries would be able to carry with them their enslaved uh, uh, property uh, uh, as, uh, as, as missionaries. And uh, that was precisely the issue that Southern Baptists left fellowship um, with the American Baptists over. And they had turned to uh, Ephesians chapter six, slaves obey your masters. This is the extension of the same passage. So it was kind of, of this realization, like you know, nobody, nobody in the church where I grew up, you know, t- talked about how our tradition had justified slavery in the past. We we certainly weren't making that argument anymore. I'd grown up in the 1980s, and we were sort of an officially colorblind uh, culture. You know, we, we we talked about how you know God loves everybody the same. We need to get beyond race. It's this kind of post civil rights, post racial um, uh, kind of moment. Um, so that's what I had been taught. 
you know, by the same people who taught me to sing red and yellow, black and white, all precious in his sight. And yet the way of reading the Bible that our people had inherited from this controversy of the mid 19th century uh, was really echoing again through what we were experiencing in the late 1990s. Um, and so, you know, in that, at the very moment when the Baptists finally got around to apologizing for the fact that we were Southern Baptists because we wanted to keep slaves 150 years earlier, we're also using the same way of reading scripture uh, to, uh, to, to sort of officially mandate the subjugation of women. And that, um, for me, was a kind of realization, wait a second, like, there's something going on here. There's, there's this, this past isn't past, you know, like Faulkner said, it's, it's never past, it's, it's, it's with us. And, um, and that's what, I think that was one of the earliest experiences that led me to really dig in and try to understand this history and how it had impacted not only me and my particular tradition, but this broader story of American Christianity. Mm-hmm. What would be some of the tenets that um, people... Uh, maybe are not aware of, but ways in which reading scripture or you know, kind of perpetuating yeah, yeah. Uh, white privilege. Yeah. What are some of those eye-opening pieces that, that you experienced? I think one of the most fundamental, and this is one that people recognize, but I don't think we often recognize the roots of it, is the, the separation of the soul from and the well-being of the soul from the well-being of the body in American Christianity. I think that's something that we grapple with in lots of ways. I mean, a lot, a lot of the spiritual formation movement has been about trying to address that, right? This fact that there's so much of Christianity that's been about guaranteeing your eternal salvation, but not necessarily forming you as a disciple of Jesus. I was struck to find that that distinction was really calcified by the mid-19th century pro-slavery argument, because when the abolitionists had built enough steam that they were really making headway in terms of the public argument against slavery, um, the churches kind of doubled down, the Southern churches in particular, doubled down on their argument for slavery and began to argue that slavery was not only justifiable, but that it was also a good, and that it was a good even for the people who were enslaved. And they made that argument by saying, that if enslaved Africans had not uh, come to the Americas, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear the gospel. Right? They would have they would have died and gone to hell. Um, th- there's no imagination for you know the basic testimony of Scripture that the you know Ethiopian eunuch right there in the story goes back <laughs> with the gospel. Uh, there's no imagination to have uh, uh, known this story before they arrived here. But but the argument that's made is that it's for the good of their souls that they have been enslaved in this place. And that, that uh, distinction between the salvation of someone's soul and the well-being of their body and the justice that that well-being demands for people, um, I think that's deeply rooted in slaveholder religion. And it echoes down to us in, in all kinds of ways. So that's one. I think another one is, um, is the division between uh, the way of Jesus and what Jesus teaches us in terms of how we live our lives and the implications of that for uh, public justice. I think that um, slaveholder religion after the Civil War uh, was deeply tied up with the redemption movement and with the uh, uh, movement of white supremacy. Uh, Redemption was specifically a white supremacy movement that overthrew Reconstruction in the South, but it goes throughout the country because 
the compromise of the 18, uh, late 1870s and 1880s was essentially establishing an American identity that was based on whiteness. And, and that was not just a Southern thing. Right? That extends throughout the country. And the churches accommodated themselves to that. Um, so it, it, it has a kind of a legacy in public life where there has continued to be both a sort of religiously justified extremism, like you saw with Redemption Movement, with the Ku Klux Klan, other you know religious nationalist movements that have done extreme things throughout history all up to the present. So there's that. But there's also, I think, the kind of accommodationist approach, which many Christians took, which was to say that Christianity is basically about what's in my heart and how I treat my family and my neighbors. It's not about how I engage in public life. And that is a legacy of slaveholder religion that remains with us still. And uh, that has actually allowed a kind of uh, religious political extremism to have disproportionate influence because there are many who have stepped back from public life and said, you know, that's not our thing. Um, we're going, you know, we're going to pray that the Lord will take care of it, but we're not directly engaged. I learned from black folks that, you, that there's just no way to be Christian. <laughs> if, if you grew up in the, in the black freedom church tradition, there's just no way to be Christian without taking account for what God demands of for justice in, in life. And um, I think that's, of course, also an important piece of what the formation movement is about and that whole social justice stream. You know, what does it, what does it mean that Christians have always been compelled, not in any partisan way, to uh, um, to, to you know be a, a sort of block in public life, but to have some basic moral convictions that say you know um, what the prophet said, you know that justice for the poor, justice for the widow, and for the alien, the stranger, uh, the immigrant among us. Th- those things are 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 basic demands. We might have you know ideological disagreements about how best to fulfill those. But um, but any kind of Christianity that says, well, you know, uh, may, may, maybe that's for you, but it's not for me, it is a kind of legacy of slaveholder religion. Hearing pieces of individualism and community yeah. life within the church. Absolutely. You know, I think I grappled with the individualism question when it comes to the legacy of racism and what that means. I grappled with that in terms of reading Ephesians chapter two. Um, I had a kind of conversion, a second conversion, maybe it was third or fourth. I don't know, but I had a, it, it was, it was a, it was a powerful moment for me when I was reading in chapter two of Ephesians as a young person where it says that Christ himself is our peace uh, for he has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility you know, this divided humanity. Of course, he's talking about Jews and Greeks, but there's all kinds of divisions we have inherited. It says we have dis- that, that Christ in himself destroyed that dividing wall and in his flesh made possible one new humanity so that we could be reconciled to God. And for me, that was a, a kind of revolutionary thing because I had, I had grown up hearing that, of course, you know, doing good things for others Reconciliation, even you know, there was talk about reconciliation a good bit in the eighties, in the early nineties. Um, reconciliation might be a ministry that you're called to, right? But it was sort of this thing that was possible because you had a relationship with Jesus, right? Because you've had your own individual experience of salvation, you could now. 
be part of you know God's reconciling ministry in the world. And it was striking to me that Ephesians puts it exactly the other way around, that what Jesus made possible in his flesh was that a new community of reconciled people could come together so that we can be reconciled to God. And uh, it reminded me of what I uh, was learning at the time from the desert tradition, right, where um, uh, uh, Dorotheus of Gaza says, you know, uh, uh, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself is to realize that we exist as on the circumference of a circle, he says. All of us are at the circumference of that circle, and God is at the middle. And there's no point from which you can move closer toward God without moving closer to your neighbor, right? The, uh, to, to, to be on that journey of moving toward the center is to be moving closer to our neighbor. Uh, Charles Pegues says, you know, we, we cannot go to God alone. For if we did, we would get there only to hear him ask, where are the others? <laughs> and I think that that kind of uh, that kind of blindness that we've inherited with much of American Christianity and the individualism that is part of it is just a, a blindness to the traditions, rec- the wide traditions recognition that there there is no relationship with Jesus apart from the relationship with the beloved community. The reign of God, the kingdom of God, you know, the, 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 the thing that God is making possible, both here on earth and in heaven, and of course we pray every day that it would come here on earth as it is in heaven already, that communion of saints is what we're striving toward. So, uh, yeah, I think that's another piece of it, the, the, the deep communal nature of our relationship with God, which doesn't make it any less personal, but it does make it less private. I think that's a a crucial thing for all of us to, to to grow into in our formation. You you, you almost can hear it as you were telling the stories of some of those laws, ways in which uh, propping up the system. These are rather than saying what's good for the community or um, what's right. It's you know how do we mm-hmm. perpetuate our own survival, our own wealth and way of life. Yeah, I think I think. A kind of a unwillingness to trust God's economy is at the heart of this. What Jesus says about money is, I think, probably some of the most uh, disruptive teaching he offers to uh, people in in today's society, to Christians in today's society, because um, you know we want to think living in the richest country to ever exist in the history of the world. We want to believe that this is normal, you know, that the kind of uh, uh, access and privilege that we become accustomed to is just normal. And uh, a right of sorts, huh? A right, yeah, yeah. And uh, that, you know, that makes Jesus, who says, give to whoever asks, offensive. You know, who is he talking to? He couldn't be talking to me. You know, how would you make it down a street in modern America if you gave to whoever asked? But I think what we miss in that is, of course, that Jesus recognizes that the need that is created through disparity in broken systems, that very need is the invitation into relationship that we that we need, that all of us need. And that um, give to whoever asks is really an invitation to to find a way into what God is doing in the world. How would we know where God is present if we weren't among those who are needy? 
if we weren't uh, in some way responding to that request in a way that invites us into community. Uh, I think the the loneliness and the uh, various, you know, emotional and spiritual uh, conditions related to that loneliness that is pervasive in, uh, you know, sort of upper middle class American life uh, is a testament to the fact that we are not living our best lives. <laughs> you know, uh, I mean, I, you know, I, uh, I do a little spiritual direction with folks who look like they're doing well. And what I realize as I listen to people is that people are aching. People are desperately hungry. You might even say starving for real community, for authentic connection with other people. Because so much of the isolation that is built on this kind of uh, wealth disparity. You see, St. Francis saw this clearly. Um, do you remember this about how St. Francis came back after he'd been traveling and the brothers had built, uh, you know, this place to live? There's this famous story about how he's, he, he sees it and he's so outraged, he gets on top of the roof and he's tearing the tiles off the roof. Right. And they ask him, you know, we're just trying to have a place to live, Francis. What's up here? And he says, he says um, whenever you claim to have something that other people don't have, you're going to have to use violence to defend it. And I think that that notion we now assume that, you know, security is a necessary part of every aspect of our life, you know, from the home security system to the, to the officer who sits at the front of the grocery store, you know, or the drugstore, wherever you go in and out every day. You know, there's so much security apparatus wrapped around everything in America and, uh, and around the world. I mean, that, that, that the disparity of this system that we've inherited has created a kind of animosity, a kind of basic animosity between people that has left all of us in so much fear that I think we have a time even imagining the invitation of Jesus, you know, uh, to, to come and be part of, uh, well, what Isaiah says, you know, come and eat, come and eat bread that you don't have to buy, right? Come and be at a table where everything is prepared for you and be at a place where we, there's enough for everyone's need, but not enough for everyone's greed. Gandhi says, I think that's, I think that's a profound uh, recognition of what the beloved community is really about. And we have a hard time practicing God's economy when we uh, have inherited a religious system that uh, has been so long used to simply justify what is instead of uh, what Jesus does, which is propose over and over again that uh, uh, the way the world is, is not the way it ought to be, but it could be different. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and it could be different right now. I think that's part of the invitation of Jesus all the time. The kingdom of God is among you. It's present. You can trust your way into it right now, always by taking very concrete actions to live into a, another way of being. Give to whoever asks. Turn the other cheek. You know, Jesus is real practical. What is your hope for folks who read the book? 
Well, my great hope is that people who begin to realize the ways we've inherited and practiced self-deception can, in honesty and with true humility, accept the invitation that has always been there. Uh, I think this is a really crucial thing for Christians to realize that while while it is true to say that there has been in the history of American Christianity the real heresy of a white church, the reality is that there's never really been a black church. The churches that we've called black churches were always, from the very beginning, churches for all people. That's why they were established, right? People who experienced a white church and who said, we're not welcome there, said, we're going to start a church for all people. <laughs> and um, now that that certainly doesn't mean that those churches have always continued to be churches for all people. There's, you know, there's all sorts of ways this legacy echoes through churches that we call white churches, churches that we call churches that we call Asian churches and Hispanic churches and all. I mean, there's so many ways that uh, we've inherited this sort of racialization of American Christianity. So I'm not saying that there's any one place anybody can go to, to get free from this, but I am saying that in whatever places where we are, where we're, where we're, where we've continued to try to follow Jesus, to try to uh, receive these scriptures as good news and as an interruptive word that's good news, right? You can't read the prophets without recognizing that an interruptive word can be good news. <laughs> um, in all of those places, I think we can, we, can, we can reach back and recognize that there has always been an invitation to be something else and that those places also exist in our history, right? This kind of uh, interruptive witness of the gospel that, you know, that, there, that the AME church when it was first established was established as a church for all people, that the abolitionist movement was a movement of enslaved Black folks who were getting away, free black folks and white folks. You know, William Lloyd Garrison was in that for his own freedom as much as anything else. The the Grimke sisters that fled their father's plantation in South Carolina, they were trying to get away for their own freedom. And all throughout history, there have been these movements of, of, of people, black, white, brown, otherwise, who have recognized that the story that race tells us about who we are is a is fundamentally a lie, and because it's a lie, it gets in the way of us understanding who Jesus is we are, right? So in order to grow into the fullness of him who fills everything, Ephesians says, in order to you know to be what Jesus calls us to be, we have to find freedom from this lie that uh, that race has created. And I think for White folks like me, that means recognizing that whiteness itself is a lie, right? That whiteness was created as a kind of imagination that told people that there was something about them that was superior to other people simply because of the color of their skin. Now, if the way toward salvation is the way of humility and repentance, how in the world is a white person going to be saved, right? The, 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 you've been lied to. You've been told that you're you're already somehow superior to other people simply because of 
you know, what you look like. That gets in the way of following Jesus. So I, these days, I spend a lot of time asking people the same question that James Baldwin asked people who thought they were white at the end of Baldwin's life in the 80s. He spent a lot of time asking white people, what were you before you were white? That's an important question to ask. You know, this, this plantation economy that was developed in this place that required the racialization of people, that it, that's what taught people that they were white. But what were you before you were white? Go learn that. <laughs> and, and, and you'll find something about what you, what you need to be free. And uh, for me, of course, what I'm, part of what I'm saying is that it has been in loving relationship with a freedom movement, a black-led freedom movement, that I've, I have been learning that there is an identity in Christ that is apart from my whiteness. And that uh, as I grow into the image of Jesus, I have to leave behind the lies that have been passed down about whiteness. That does not mean you have to leave behind all the parts of so-called white culture, right? And frankly, there's a lot of my so-called white culture that intersects quite a bit with black culture in America. For example, my mama gave me her mama's recipe for banana pudding, which is a Southern delicacy. And that banana pudding is the favorite dessert at our so-called black church here <laughs> in this neighborhood now, because everybody here grew up with Southern mamas who also made banana pudding. I'm just saying that it's not, it's not that all parts of culture have been corrupted. It's just that there is this basic lie that we have to learn how to interrogate and to realize how it has misshapen us in order to grow into, I think, the formation that God has for us. I love that you're bringing it back around to this because really this is about freedom and freedom from uh, kind of ways in which we might be enslaved or perpetuating uh, enslaving and harming other people, not aware of it. The, the thing that comes back to me too is I don't know what I don't know. Mm -hmm. And it's really, really helpful to just listen, right? Mm -hmm. Hear other stories and be open to the idea that maybe I don't know everything and maybe there's a lot of things for me to learn. Yeah. And there are a lot of people who've been uh, saying for a long time that things could be different. Right. So when I talk to people about listening, one of the things is that, you know, you you don't have to go very far to listen. You know, there's a, there's a long tradition of people (laughs) who've been, and, and part of what I try to point people to, especially in the notes of this book is that, you know, there is a tradition that stretches from, you know, before Frederick Douglass on up to the present of, of people who've said, here's another way to follow Jesus, right? Let's disciple ourselves to that sojourner truths insight. Uh, uh, Howard Thurman, you know, Martin King, Fannie Lou Hamer, Rosa Parks, black theology, which developed as a way of articulating what, you know, in, in the kind of academic speech, what, uh, people had practiced in churches for generations. People who hadn't had access to theological education. James Cone said, "Look, if I'm going to study Karl Barth for a decade, uh, but so I can be credentialed, what I'm going to do with my credential is I'm going to teach people what my grandmama knew. <laughs> right? <laughs> I'm going to teach that. I'm going to teach that theology. And um, and I think we need to we need to 
to practice the listening that you're talking about is to simply recognize that these gifts abound. They're all around us. We can start learning from them whenever we're ready. <laughs> There's a lot of people who say, wish, wish we'd been ready a long time ago. <laughs> if you're ready now, dive in. <laughs> well, and maybe the last thing I'd add to it. I'm not entitled to have people teach me. Mm-hmm. When, when I enter into a conversation with folks and hear their story and, and they help me wrestle through some of these things, that's a service they're giving me. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and that's a, a gift because they've they've learned it blood and tears. And mm-hmm. I'm not entitled to that. No, I think that's really important. What we're talking about are spiritual treasures, and um, and you're right. They've cost people a lot, and it would be a uh, it is a grave injustice to you know extend the uh, the lie of whiteness to somehow believe that you know, that anybody has a right to those treasures apart from receiving them as a gift. And frankly, apart from um, compensating people, not for the treasures themselves, but for their willingness to uh, pass those on and interpret them for you. Um, I think, you know, people who, who, who have inherited assumptions about uh, black people being there to serve certainly need to recognize that um, uh, there's a basic justice to uh, comp- justly compensating people for their service. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that is important. Mm. Whether it's uh, buying the books <laughs> that black folks have written, or you know, when, you, when you enter into relationship locally with people who can share these treasures, to, to have an honest conversation about what justice requires, right? Because it's not, it's not a simple exchange. We often talk about this in terms of reparations, right? How do we repair historic harms? Uh, how do we make amends for injustice? And that's not a simple conversation, but it does, it does always have to do about uh, the sharing of resources and what, and what it means to... See, this is what white folks have to grapple with. With inheritors of this kind of spiritual poverty I was describing that creates loneliness. But we also, by the laws of the land, have uh, control still over the great majority of resources, both in the church and in other institutions. And so that creates a great responsibility in terms of how you can invest those resources in supporting the spiritual treasures that other people have. Yes. Leverage, power, privilege, for the good of others. Yeah, good of absolutely. Mm-hmm. And listen to how other people are, in, you know, are instructing us on how to do that. Because I think, uh, I think often people have very concrete ideas about what that could look like. It's not like we need to come up with them. <laughs> Folks have thought this through. Right, right. That's good. Jonathan, very helpful. Thank you so much. Good to be with you. Bless you. Well, there you have it. Again, Jonathan's book is titled Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. As always, thanks for listening and have a great week.